This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. This is a Vault Studios production. It's a summer Saturday morning in St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana. An otherwise ordinary day for a lot of people around here. But for Nanette Krentel's family and friends, it's the first morning they'll wake up knowing she's gone. The smiling and fun-loving former teacher, friend, sister, daughter, and wife, gone, suddenly, and without explanation. Burned beyond recognition in a house fire the day before. But how could this strong, capable woman die inside her house in the middle of the day? I know if it was reversed, if it was one of Nanette's friends that this happened to, Nanette would not let it go. She would be the first one trying to to get answers. For Vault Studios, I'm Katie Moore. This is Beyond Bardstown, Lacombe. At 9 a.m. on that Saturday morning, as smoke drifts into the sky from the burning remains of the Krentel's one-story house in Lacombe, Louisiana, the St. Tammany Parish Coroner's Office begins the autopsy on her body. Her father and another sister in Iowa learned about the fire and then the discovery of her body just the night before. Nanette's sister, Kim Watson. Dad called and said, Kim, Nanette's dead. And I just, what? But just knowing that she's gone, that was the hardest part. Kim's longtime boyfriend, Randy Grotkin, still wonders why it took so long for Nanette's husband, Steve, to call about the fire the day before, more than three hours after arriving at the scene. Don't you think you'd call your wife's father and his family and let them know, even if they haven't found her yet? It's pretty pretty safe to guess with her vehicle there and you nobody's located her that she was in the fire. And then there was that Facebook conversation with her old friend Lori Rando on Thursday night, the night before the fire. A conversation that ended suddenly, abruptly, without a goodbye. To the family, it all seemed more than a little strange. Her talking to Lori and then, then it's, just it's not like her to just not answer. I mean, she's more about other people. And for her to all of a sudden suddenly stop responding and not respond in the morning. To not answer Lori, you know, at least say, okay, good night, gotta go, or, or something. Just, just tells no me that something was wrong the night before. These are just the first of so many questions the family will ask about what happened that day and about the investigation that would follow. An investigation they now believe was mishandled and bungled from the start. An investigation they say should have gone by the book, but didn't. On this July Saturday morning, it's hard to believe they'll only have memories to share of the sassy, loving woman they all knew. Nanette's sister, Amy Bernard. She was so much fun. Her laugh, like you hear her repeatedly, she had a very infectious and um, fun laugh. Oh my gosh. If, if you knew her, you loved her. Lori Rando was a friend for almost four decades. She was extremely friendly and outgoing, and she made you feel like you were 
you know, a good close friend, and no matter how long it was that you knew her for, whether it was for five minutes or five years, you were, you know, her good friend. Is If you were nice, then she was nice right back to you. And everyone who knew Nanette knew how much she loved her pets. A chihuahua named Harley and her cats, pets that died inside the house alongside Nanette. Her father, Dan Watson. Harley was definitely her, her dog. And she doted on him. She treated him like a member of the family. She, from a young age, I mean, she always loved kids, animals, and wasn't able to have kids. Harley was her baby, little long-haired chihuahua. There was no question she loved animals and her pets. It prompted some to wonder later if she risked her life that day trying to save them as the flames ripped through the house. I was with her one time. We went to a post office for her to deliver something. It was like 100 degrees out. And there was a there was a vehicle next to us with a dog in it and the windows rolled up and it wasn't running. She marches into that post office and who owns this in this car with, you know, do you know that your dog is in that car and the windows are up and it's hot, it's this, this hot outside, so your dog is baking in that car. Told him to get out there and get his dog out of that car. She was going to go out there and break the window. So, I mean, that was usually how she ended up handling things. Nan, you could read her face. You didn't need to find, ask her how she felt about something. You could just see it <laughs> all over her face. Yeah, she, she, I mean, she told us another story about how she um, helped a lady. She saw, saw a lady and a guy out in a parking lot of Walmart or one of the stores down there. And he hear, she hears him yelling and she's crying. And I think he, she, she's, she wasn't afraid to intervene. Most people, she, she's like, most people would keep walking, but I can't. I can't sleep at night if I walk away like everyone else does. She's like, this isn't, isn't okay, and I'm not gonna be that person because I can't lay my head on my pillow at night and go to sleep. And so she, you know, kind of knocked on their window and was like, can I help you? You know, and asked the lady, do you wanna come out and talk for a second? And the guy got kind of upset, but she did get the lady to get out of the car. And just she gave her some information, just sat there and listened to her. She said the lady just sat there and cried. And she went out and told the guy, hey, you know, you can call for help. You can call this, um, like there was some sort of counseling number that she had and gave to him. She said, I, I hope everything was okay and that I didn't cause any more problems, but they seemed calm when I left and she got back in her car. So at least I feel like I tried to help. But if Nanette was able to help others, she seemed to be struggling with being able to help herself. Life seemed to be closing in on her as she approached 50. Maybe she was feeling stuck. Nanette's sister, Amy Bernard, had noticed a change. You know, she got, seemed like withdrawn, and she wasn't ready to, to do anything yet, to make a life change at that point later in life. But now I can see, because she did seem a little sad and melancholy and withdrawn in her later years. Nanette had been spending more and more time at home in recent months and years. She told family she felt safe there, surrounded by a gate, with guns to protect her, and cameras to keep an eye on things. Cameras inside and outside her isolated home. 
cameras set up by her husband, Steve Krentel. He'd set up similar cameras at the fire station and at his mother's house nearby. The house was like a fortress because there were cameras everywhere, cameras at the gate, cameras around the property, cameras in the house. Um, He put extra storm doors on the front door. There was a board that would kind of come over the back door to like you could put a board down. And Nanette had reasons for feeling afraid. Many of them connected to certain members of her husband's family and things that had happened in recent years. There was a lot of stress um, in the relationship as far as um, with her or with his family members. Um, There was a lot of stress with um, her brother-in-law and the different um, problems they were having with him and a lot of stress with um, her stepson, Justin. Because the problems started in 2016 when Nanette expressed fear of Justin to the point where she would not permit him to come on their property unless Steve was home. Then he could come on and Steve and her would have arguments over it. Steve would say, yes, he should be able to come on. He's okay. There's no problem. You're too rigid. He was in some ways threatening towards her. Mm. And Steve wouldn't acknowledge it. Neither would Steve's mother. Nan was scared to death of him. But whatever was going on, it was clear to her friends, her family, and her father, Dan, that things were not all right. I could always tell Nan's anxiety rate based on the length of her phone calls. And sometimes they would hit straight two hours, and that's when you're talking every day, except never when Steve was around. The weekends were no, no calls. And when there was a holiday, then she would call, hand Steve the phone, and we would exchange uh, Merry whatever, Happy mm-hmm. Father's Day, and right. so forth. And uh, How's the weather? It's good. That's it. Yeah. But at the same time, it appeared Steve was willing and able to make his wife feel safe at home, guarded from the outside world, and threats, neither real or imagined. And every morning on his way to work, Steve says he would call his wife. To Nanette's father, Dan Watson, the fire chief seemed okay, for the most part. When I did meet him, he was friendly. I mean, he mm-hmm. it's that I could tell he was controlling my visits. I mean, I couldn't just go visit. So I thought, well, they're married and so forth and so on. And that's okay. Didn't really have any big problem with it. They came up here a couple of times visiting. um, And we basically had good time, went out, ate, you know. Do you think you said that you felt like he was controlling? Do you feel like he was isolating her? Or was that a choice that she was making on her own because of her anxiety? Well, I don't know that for sure. In hindsight, I'd say he was controlling her because he was not protecting her 
when I offered to come down to visit, I have some weapons mm -hmm. and I am trained and I just said, I'll come down, I'll be with you. And uh, every time it was, I'll talk it over with Steve. Well, after a while, I already knew what the answer was. As soon as it was, I'll talk it over with Steve. I wasn't going to be given approval to come down. So I was starting to get suspicious. It appeared to me Nanette still loved Steve. That's what I thought, and I went along with whatever she and he decided. So Nanette's world grew smaller, and she stayed home for the most part with her pets and her cameras and her guns. But leading up to July 14th, 2017, Nanette never stopped trying to reach out to her dad, her sisters, even friends from long ago like Lori Rando, and another friend, a man named Sean. He was in the military. I don't remember. He was Army. Army. Um, and just a friend, he knew her. He said they were in school together, but she went to all-girls school, so I'm not really sure if that was, like, the younger school before high school, because she went to Chappelle, and that was all girls. Um, they were friends. Anytime he would come home around Christmas or, you know, break on military, they'd go have lunch, that kind of thing. And he said that she was just one of the few people that kept talking to him while he was gone out of the country and just made him feel like, you know, I'm still, I'm still got a little bit of home. I've still got friends, you know, just grounded him a little bit. Mm -hmm. Just friends. I mean. No romantic relationship? No. How often did they talk? Seemed like it wasn't very often. Only about when, you know, she'd comment on his Facebook stuff, that kind of thing. And then when he was getting ready to come home, hey, do you want to have lunch? And he got some messages he thought were a little odd from her, just basically that it was about to be her 50th birthday. Mm -hmm. 49 or 50, was it, birthday was coming around. And he said, oh, you know, what are you guys going to do? Where's Steve going to surprise you or take you for your birthday? And she said that he was going to be, he's going out of town, so that's my present this year. Like, thank goodness. And she, I don't think she really gave him a lot of detail on that. Just don't want to deal with him, and that's my present. I'll take it. So, yeah, we can go have lunch because he'll be gone. Mm -hmm. They had to cancel their lunch because he ended up not leaving. And I, he's very possessive. I don't, it, she Steve was is. always, yeah, she was always having, he always had to know where she was and what she was doing. I don't know why, I don't know that she ever gave him a reason for that, or if that's just his personality is what I take after being around him a little more. But if Nanette's last days alive were punctuated by fear and anxiety, the days after her death, at least for her family, were marked by confusion and uncertainty. And it all started on that Saturday when, as her family would later learn when they got into town, the scene of the fire was released. In other words, crime scene tape was removed and any official security around the scene and guarding evidence was no longer necessary, at least according to those in charge. This decision coming the day after the fatal fire is still a topic of controversy, you could say resentment, for the family. They feel, like others, that it was too soon, too much debris and evidence to comb through, 
too many clues still buried in the ashes. And to this day, they're still unclear whether it was released by the fire marshal or by the sheriff's office. According to Doug Johnson, a retired homicide investigation supervisor, later brought in by Nanette's family to take another look at what happened that day, a typical fire scene would only be released once everything had been studied and restudied. When do you release the scene back to whoever the scene belongs to? When you're absolutely comfortable that you've got everything. And how long does that normally take? I know it varies from scene it, to well, scene. Well, it does vary. We've, we've Probably held, pretty widely. We've held scenes for a couple of days. You have to have somebody physically there to hold the scene. So that makes it difficult. But, and yeah, yeah, it, it's time consuming, mm-hmm. but you don't want to let it go until you're absolutely certain. But on that Saturday morning before the scene was released, Nanette's father, Dan Watson, was just trying to get some answers. He picked up the phone and called Steve Krentel. I said, where are you? And he said, I'm at the fire scene, going through some things. I said, well, we'll be down when we know what the schedule's gonna be. Well, he didn't mention to me that the coroner wanted me down there to give my DNA, so we didn't rush right away. We drove down Sunday. Dan Watson, Kim Watson, Randy, and other family members all make the long trip from Iowa to Louisiana, arriving early Monday morning. That's when they first meet up with Steve. It's the first time they've seen him since the fire. And Dan and Steve head over to the coroner's office. That's when Steve was telling me Nanette died in the house fire, but she was overcome by smoke because she was attempting to save the pets. And when was that again? That would have been Monday after the fire on our way to the coroner's office. And he repeated the same story after we left the uh, coroner's office and went to uh, the fire scene. And so when dad got back, we got in the car and we went over there. And we thought we were alone, the gate was open. Like, oh, okay. So my aunt and I, my Aunt Joanne and I started taking some pictures because I thought I'm never gonna remember this to describe it. And how how is this open to the public? How am are we able to just drive in here? There should be tape, there should be an officer, there should be somebody watching this, blocking it till it is completely down to the flab, as you guys say. All the ash has gone through everything, and it and it wasn't, and I just, that was a shock. So I thought, well, I'm going to take some pictures because why not? I might as well see what I can see. And Steve came out of the little shed off to the side and scared the crap out of us. Like, oh, okay. And so he came out and started explaining what he saw and what he thought happened, and they even kind of... Said, is it, I said, is it okay to take pictures, you know? And, and they kind of walked into it a little bit, and I told him to watch out because he got flip-flops on. Just walking in the middle of the house like it was no big, seat, no big deal. They released the scene to him, so, yeah. Yeah, everybody just walking. Him and Steve and Justin were in, picked up a couple of things that looked like, um, they said, oh, that was her her photo album or something, and... 
Yeah, Justin just removed a few things. Dropped it back down, and he, he had found an iPod or something that he took out and was trying to see if it still worked. When it was interesting, while we were there talking to Steve, I didn't want to assume anything, even though in the back of my mind, all I could think was, "What did you do? What did your family do, and why?" But I'm going to try to understand every bit of it and not assume anything. I didn't have any proof of anything. What they did learn that week are some of the few details we've ever heard about the fire and how it started. They learned that the fire was intentionally set and an accelerant had been used in the living room and the master bedroom, right next to where Nanette was found on her back on the floor of the master bathroom. The fact that the fire was not an accident wasn't a surprise to her family. Everything about it seemed planned out to them. Kim's boyfriend, Randy Grotkin, is actually a volunteer firefighter with two decades of experience. He knows his way around a fire scene. Knowing how the houses down there are built, in the middle of the day, if you sleep normal hours and you're awake, you don't die in a house fire on a single-story house. You're not trapped. There's ways to get out. It's not like the house suddenly is just burst into flames and totally engulfed. And the other thing that... I can't remember what I said to Kim about it, but where her body was, the most intense part of the fire, that makes sense if you're trying to cover something up. But it was also, I think, strategically placed there because when the trucks arrive and the guys start trying to extinguish the fire, it's going to be the last place you hit because the trucks are all coming from the other end. So you're going to hit what's closest to you and work your way back. So you're going to push that fire in the heat even more that way. The way the house was burnt, looking at it, it just all makes sense as this was planned out to be done this way for the maximum amount of damage to her and the area she was in. They'd later learn that two guns were found at the scene and removed. Two of the 30 that the Krentals owned and kept inside the house. And later that week, the carcasses of Nanette's two cats were located in the ashes. Her dog Harley had already been removed. But even that wasn't totally clear to the family at that point. Now, the coroner's office told us that Harley had been taken with Nanette's remains. And so Harley was sent off to a forensic vet. I don't, I don't know whatever came of that. But Dr. Bennett and Doug Johnson did see an x-ray of Harley, and Doug could see that his um, back was broken. I don't know if that's something that might happen from a fire. No. No idea. A while after that, um, Ricky with the fire marshal's office, Ricky Robique said, we have the cats. Because I, I said, I just want to know, do you have them? Did you find them? And he, he, he did say that was one of the things, he said, we, we have the cats. So, as much as I'd like to know, did anybody look at them? Did anybody send their remains off to see what's happening? I wish I knew. But even with these findings, the location of where the fire was set and how it was set, the family was shocked to learn that the scene had been released the day after Nanette's body was found, the day after someone had intentionally burned down the fire chief's house. Did you have a reason to complain about how the fire scene was handled? Yes. It wasn't secured. It wasn't cleared. 
by this time it was midweek following the fire and the scene was still wide open with with all the debris and so forth had not been collected by anybody and the fire marshal would say it was the sheriff and the sheriff would say it was the fire marshal so they were talking in circles yes and you know you're getting the run around when when you hear things like that Even meeting with investigators in person that first week after the fire didn't seem to give Dan or Nanette's family any real sense of comfort with the investigation. We listened for a long, long time to what they had to say, but they had two investigators there and walked out and were just, this is really frustrating. And Nanette's family questioned over and over why the scene was released so soon why so much of the rubble and debris seemed untouched. Why neighbors, as far as they could tell, were not questioned. That's very basic. Why wouldn't they talk to all the neighbors? What did you hear? What did you see? Yeah. I don't believe it's incompetence. There's too many things wrong to be incompetent. And they've got a lot of experience in that department, at least from the guys that we talked to. And the other cases we've read about They've got the training, they've got the experience. I mean, either it was burnt too badly or it's just what's, why are there no answers? Or are there answers they just can't give because they're onto something? And then in the middle of an emotional week of meetings and unanswered questions, Nanette's family learns that the fire scene was being resecured. The day after, I think it was Wednesday, so the 19th, I think they retook it back from Steve, and he made it seem like he encouraged that, that he wanted everything done right. And it sounded like his investigator was in there sifting through things with the sheriff's office and the fire marshal, I'm not sure. I think they were there as well. But I know Hudson said he was, he said, oh yeah, we've been there all day long, sifting through grid by grid and bit by bit. Which is how it should have been done to begin with. The fire scene should have been gridded off And it should have been examined section by section and documented and sifted through. So you go through everything and have the best chance of finding anything. And that wasn't done until five days after the fire? No, and it was done by the sheriff's department, the sheriff told us. But then the fire marshal said they did it. Yeah, they said they were there too. So it's a little confusing. So I don't know who did it, if it was done correctly or how thorough it was done. Because we don't know, that nobody's informed us. They also spent time with Steve that week, sometimes with Steve's mother and with Nanette's stepson, Justin. The same stepson that Nanette's family says she had been so afraid of. And over dinner with Steve, his mother, and Justin, the topic of Nanette's death seemed strangely absent. There just really was not much discussion at all about Nan. It was on our mind, but apparently not not too many of the other individuals talked about it. And again, you, I went back to Wells. You know, sometimes people handle grief in a different way. And what happened is we let Steve just tell story after story after story to us. And when we began to compare the contradictions by the end of the week, it's like something's not right. And Steve has some involvement. His story isn't the same. It keeps changing. 
And from the beginning, even back in Iowa, when they first got the news, before they made that long trip to Lacombe, before they spent hours meeting with investigators, before the scene was released and then resecured, Nanette's family already suspected her death was not an accident. No one believed she died of anything natural the minute we heard Steve on the phone say that she died in a house fire. It's like she was murdered. I knew it. I mean, it was no question in my mind. And when I conveyed that to the rest of the family, they had the same sentiment. She was murdered. Wake up. Beyond Bardstown, Lacombe. People that, that I know that are that are familiar with investigations say the first 48, 72 hours are very critical. And it would just seem to me from some of the things that we've found out that the first 48 to 72 hours are a missed opportunity in this case, that there were things not done. Bardstown, Lacombe, is a Vault Studios and WWL-TV production. You can learn more about our podcasts, including The Daily Crime and True Crime Chronicles, at vaultstudios.com. Special thanks to WWL-TV News Director Keith Esperos and visual journalist Derek Waldrop. Vault Studios executive producers are Brian Weiss and Will Johnson. Reed Redman is our writer and producer. Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland, mixes and edits the show. For Vault Studios, I'm Katie Moore. 